Okay, so we're doing the essay Halachic Morality um, by Russell Vechik. Um I tried a, a, a thing on, on Facebook a while back where I just put selections from this up on the web and asked people to, you know, whether they believed they were from Russell Vechik, and it wasn't clear that people would. Um, so this is this to me is it's, it's unpublished, undated, so we don't know when he wrote it. Uh, we don't know what he wrote it for. Um, and if I didn't you know, like it so much, I would probably you know, cast aspersions on maybe he wrote it, you know, you know as an experiment. He didn't really believe it, um, but since I do like it very much, <laughs> one of the other essays in the book has a similar idea. Yes, right. So I think I think that this is actually a crucial piece for understanding what he's talking about everywhere else. But um, yeah, I don't think it's so out of character for him. So let's talk about why. Right? Let's, let's write. Uh, I agree with you, but I think that is that you know I think that was taken as a very uh, you know, for other people reacted very differently. So let's um, <laughs> right. So let's see why you think that. If you think that good for you, I think. Um, assuming you understood it, right? Which is also <laughs> same thing is true of me. So we've we've been doing a bunch of ways of um, complicating categories that are used in. Uh, that are often used in discourse about Orthodox Judaism. Um, so there are categories, there, and there are categories within halacha that are used like uh, there's also which uh, various people have come up with, which we have not addressed, um, but which you could conceivably identify uh, if you wanted to, you could say that you could say, for example, you could say that are deontological mitzvot, mitzvot that are just wrong and right, are consequentialist mitzvot, right? Mitzvot that are that are judged by their effect on their their effect on the world, and mitzvot are virtual mitzvot, right? Mm. The ones that affect you are right. So you can divide those categories into categories that we have already that we've already discussed. Um, so we saw that uh, Rabbi Hanan uh, may do that in right. He may right, he may have a division between benedam lamakom as as um, as as deontological and Ben Adam Chavero is consequentialist, uh, and he does make the claim. It seems that all mitzvot Ben Adam Chavero are fundamentally judged by consequences, and not only judged by consequences, but decided by consequences. And we raised the question about whether, right, about whether that the judgment of consequences always translates directly into law. Or whether sometimes the law is concretized in a particular form, but what do you do when the law is concretized in one form and the consequences, and yet it, it is counterproductive in terms of its consequences? So that might be where you get categories like Haver Lishma. Um, right, right, because right, because the claim that the law should be consequentialist doesn't tell you, right, laws, right, unless you claim that the law is doesn't exist beyond the specific case. Whenever you abstract it, there are going to be cases where the law doesn't yield the consequences you want. So then you can make the claim, yes. But treating the law as law, regardless of consequences, has better consequences, right? That, or you could argue no, right? That sometimes that you know, the consequences are best achieved by this is what I argue about torture are best achieved by setting the law and then telling people that sometimes they have religious obligation to act otherwise. But the law will the fact that they have religious obligation to act otherwise doesn't change the fact that the law has the right to punish them. Right, and that's right, and that that's can tie into all sorts of concepts, civil disobedience, and things like that. Then we saw um, then we saw Usher Weiss, um, who we could in the categories I'm using now, what we could say is Usher Weiss comes along and says that it's too simple to say that should all be judged um, on terms of consequences because some of them have to be judged um, set 
uh, either exclusively on the on a virtual basis, um, or on or at least additionally on a virtual basis, right? That they're about character development, right? Some of them are benedam latzmo and not benedam lachaviro. If you use the categories, if you use the categories that way, um, maybe he also thinks some is supposed to be categorized benedam lamakom. It's very hard to say that Dalai Lama is sort of consequentialist because you're not supposed to be able to affect God, um, right? You, know, you could construct one where it depends, you know, where where, you know, where it would be bad to affect God in ways that right, in ways that cause God to punish people, <laughs> and you can make it consequentialist that way. The Chazanish may, in some places, do that, but um, let's let's be simpler for now and say that. Probably there is right. You can't make Mandela Macomb consequentialist, but you can make them virtue oriented. Right? You can say the purpose of some is supposed to have no effect on others or so exclusively to affect yourself, and that's a bad So we can we can we can um, connect or interconnect the categories um, that way. Then we saw uh, Professor Brown um, via uh, Professor Fuller, um, and through an analysis of through an analysis of Lashonara. Um, suggest that right there's there is another category. I guess Rabbi Weiss, when he said it's rooted in Torah Midot, he still basically treated it as law. Right? What he said was you would postulate it differently if you see it as law based on Midot as opposed to, as as based in Midot as opposed to based in sort of Hetter. We didn't change the notion of postulating. Yeah. Right? I think that's for whereas uh, Professor Brown said maybe the whole idea of psak is not the right idea in certain right in in certain kind of realms and you have separate realms which he called musr um right then he, then he out of his way to say that musr shouldn't be identified with any of the other right category right musr is its own is its own jewish category for a way of telling you what to do um, right, which should not be connected to consequentialism or virtue ethics, right, or, or right, or even or even as a rejection of the ontology at all, right. It's just a different way of telling you what to do, which functions on the basis of principles, as opposed to on the basis of law. Granting that in tradition those categories were not always distinguished the way he distinguishes them. Okay, right. He's trying to develop a uh, a feeling. We argued that that that. Um, it's, you know that even in specific fields, it's really complicated to know right whoever held whoever held what because it's not clear that the writing of them is obviously distinct. Um, okay, we have a, we have hanging for a while the um, distinction that I want to attribute to the Tosfot that Rabbi Bitsaku builds off uh, about how Mishpavah maybe Harsinai connects um, connects to constant law. Also, so we're going to bracket that. Uh, we're going to bracket that. So here um, the Rav comes up with, and there's one other essay in this book, and I don't know of any other place where, places where he distinguishes halacha and ethics. And right, and if you have the model of the Rav, which I think was dominant for a long time, where he's a pan-halachist, and the, the goal is to reduce everything in religious life to ethics, to constrain, so Rolfensky's essays are an ethic-independent halacha. is holy, Inconsistent with this. What's the question? Of course. How is Rav Lefkin saying? as all I say, which the end of it he argues is just a matter of semantics. Mm-hmm. Right? There are things that you can call them part of halacha, you cannot call them part of halacha, but fundamentally, right? Because really everything in some sense comes down to halacha. The only question is how 
specifically and rigorously halacha is formulated? I mean, the Rav calls it halachic law versus halachic morality. Good. Okay, so I have to figure out, right? So we can challenge them. We're not reading Reluchlis' essay, so we can go back and read Reluchlis' essay after his. Reluchlis' focuses. All right, here's, here's how I will try and claim it. Reluchlis' focuses mm-hmm. on the category Lufnimi Shurahadim. And that's how most people who are who start with halachic frame, right, and people who are educated in the Rav Soloveitchik framework, start by assuming that well, here the default is halacha, and then there are spaces outside of halacha. Um, we build off the Rambans about Vasita Tov Ve'ashar and Kedoshim Tiu. Uh, the Rambans model basically is there are too many details to be covered by right, to be covered by law. Um, so we have to leave spaces where all you can do is try to extend the rays of halacha. Mm-hmm. But you have, for example, um, the notion, Ray Blake's notion, right? The Sadin is hierarchical. The more the higher madrega you're on, the more you have to keep of it. And so the goal is to move a society to a state where the Sadin becomes in. And there isn't that space outside it because we all reach the madrega. And right, and we can look at all sorts of things, right? This is you know, this is a parallel to progressive morality notions, right? Maybe it was once Lifnim Sadin not to own slaves, even under halachic parameters, and now, right? And now it's not Lifnim Sadin anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, you know, all sorts of financial things. But as the Shur said, in the Shur is an unreasonable social expectation, and the goal is to make it a reasonable social expectation. But in, in the end, your goal is right, and and you can get ever expanding bodies of law. So the space of to some extent shrinks. Right, the better abstractions we get. Uh, who are you attributing that view to? Sorry, Blake says about the Shur said in, uh, and I I wonder. I wonder whether anybody in this in this framework, you know, starting with the team, would say, would would have an objection to reducing anything to halacha if you could. I haven't seen that word. Okay, so right, this is sort of all fair, all fair, all fair critique, and right, we should go back and see whether that's uh, right. What what he actually says, I think it is fair to say that he talks about listening to Shurus Adin as the fundamental model for. Um, yeah, he is very into like Tavar shooting stuff. Yes. He didn't, uh, didn't say there being spaces for a shoot. Uh, let's figure out what, the, what are the spaces for a shoot for? I have to talk about why, why are they there? Uh, right? Why, why, are the, why are there uncommanded spaces at all? And, and is in it, in your, okay, right? So we can talk about this. That's a fair critique. I'm interested to know how you understand what he said about that. Um, okay. The category of the name of I always feel uh, compelled to say um, is, I think, generally mistranslated. Because we usually translate this name Sadin beyond the letter of the law. And the impression we have is that there's a circle, which is the law, and Lifnim mm-hmm. Mishrasadin are the things outside it. But Lifnim Sadin, the metaphor actually works the other way around. There's a thing which is the law, and there are things inside it, mm-hmm. further in, inside, right? Lifnim Sadin means further in, not further out. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a metaphor in um, one of the um, one of the perushim of Tosfos on um, on Chumash, which I think is very powerful and has a lot of truth to it, uh, which they imagine God as king, surrounded by angels of Din, and the point is that Din is what you do when you have no discretion, and Rachamim. Is some right? Rachamim is discretion. 
And in order to reach the stage of discretion, you have to reach, right? You have to reach people. In order to reach, to, to get Rachamim, you have to reach someone with discretion. So Malachim, right, who are the circle, right? Malachim, right? Basically, the bureaucrats, guard, right? The bureaucrats guard the authority. And you set up rules and you delegate and the point, right? And the closer you get in, the more authority there is. And ultimately, but the only people who can disregard the rules entirely, which is what Rachamim is, mm-hmm. is God. So you have to penetrate all the way to the center. And that's what Lifti Mishra Sadin is. Lifti Mishra Sadin is, is getting past the law. It's not that you're in, it's not that you're in the wilderness where there's no, where there, where there's no law. It's you're, it's, you're in the, it's, it's you're in the realm of relationship where there's no law. So those are totally different metaphors of, what Lifti Mishra, of the space in which Lifti Mishra Sadin Occupies, and if you try and think about the Dimitris in his ethics, then so you're going to right, you'll understand them in almost exactly opposite ways. Um, does the Rav talk about this, like Lifnim Hadina's relationship somewhere in one of the essays? Not that I know. I don't think the Rav talks about Lifnim Hadina in this context at all. The Lutzenstein talks about Lifnim Hadina, and he does not talk about it that way. Okay, that was an interesting idea. Uh, I, I thought that that when I read that metaphor, I was I was very excited. It's one of my favorite Makara. Mm-hmm. Um, Thinking about lifting interest in as the as the center of a, you know the, which is guarded by a by a perimeter of bureaucracy, there is a, there is like the, really one of the only two worthwhile moments in in the in the I think the second Hitchhiker's movie, where the uh, where the bureaucracy is guarded by machines that right by anti thought device. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every time you try thinking that they just pop up and whap you whap you over the head so that you can't uh, right it, it sort of captures. Uh, it captures the idea of an extreme form. Okay, so that right. So I want I want to try and invert the whole notion, uh, right? Where so in one vision, which is what you know, which is to some extent, I think where Lichtenstein is going without looking forward to Tani's critique, and I think there's validity to it. But I'll, I'll take the I'll make the extreme version right now, right? So it's the wilderness, right? And you're and what you really want to be is you want to civilize the space, right? You have this lawless frontier place right where, where where law has not yet come and your goal is to bring right is to bring is to bring law to it uh, as much as possible and until there's law all you can have is, all you can have is the equivalent of vigilante justice everyone doing what they believe is right according to what they're right but, it, but it'd be better if you could have a sheriff in town um okay there's a marvelous sentence by dr salvatric talking about the talmud being cultivated organized and administered by Josephus thought if a wild untamed field and the volatiles come in. Um, so um, I think that's a that's a, a fair vision of You might connect this argument that say, you know what, in the same way that God allows for the possibility of evil and God does create an unfinished world. So there's right, so God leaves this space for human beings to find value in, right? So it, leaves, so it preserves space for autonomy, but it's not in here. You know, God could have made those two, right? He had to leave, right? But he, he, chose, he thought it was a good idea to leave some space. Okay. Um, a, what I want to argue is that the Rav here makes a totally different claim. And he makes a claim that uh, utterly undoes any notion of him as a panhalachist, right? That he doesn't think that everything is supposed to be halacha or, right, or the halacha is the only, is the only way of addressing a um, of, of addressing religion, or even necessarily the primary way, mm-hmm. it's a way, and there's a whole space which is not uh, right, which is which is not um, subject to halacha at all. So I want to spend some time today trying to see how we can limit those uh, the parameters of those spaces. Uh, 
Um, we have to point out, right, so I mentioned that Rav Luchlenstein in his essay um, relegate, right, claims in the body that uh, doesn't address very Lishma on the body. In the footnote, he says very Lishma doesn't exist post-Mathan Torah. Then he says, but see Rambam. To me, the, the thing that always gets me at Rav Luchlenstein's essay um, is that he addresses the question of whether it's an ethics independent of halacha, but he never addresses the question of whether ethics can conflict with halacha. And if ethics are independent, I want to argue, they will inevitably conflict. And therefore, right, really, the intent of the essay in many ways is to make it right, is to present the question in such a way that the real right that the real question never arises. Because right, it's only a question of semantics, therefore there can't be conflict. Right, that's why I want to write that. I mean, I don't know if, I, mean, I think in other places where Wilson does, he does talk about when ethics comes into law. <laughs> yes, that's correct. That's right. So he has, he has to address the, you know, how, how and how, right, how the other spaces do. I think there are ways to reconcile that. Um, but it's astonishing to me that you can essay called Is there an ethic event of halacha and never acknowledge the possibility of any kind of uh, any kind of conflict? There is a simple way you know, of saying, you know, what when the ethics conflict, the you say is when ethics conflict with halacha, you have one of them wrong. Right? That's right, that's the um at the end of the day, there can only be one thing you have to do. And so if they conflict, you have to write one possibility is you're doing one of them wrong. The other possibility is you, know, you end up, you have to end up in some kind of uh, a Averroes position. Uh, Averroes, or Ibn Rushdie, uh, in a very oversimplified version, because I'm not, you know, here I, I just talk to what other people tell me, and I'm, you know, tell me about uh, philosophy. But I don't, when I was young, I, you know, I, I shared it, what I think was a common aversion to Averroes. Um, where various holds this double truth theory that, that that sounded like double you know double think and and the new speak and thing that we can say two things two things are true at the same time right that's how various handles the trend handles the trinity supposedly right that that really was not very appealing and then at some point um i realized that what a various that at least i could understand a various in a way which made a lot more sense which is that a various thinks that you can have valid epistemologies that yield that yield contradictory results. There are two different things that we ordinarily treat as reliable ways of knowing things, and you can't evaluate a reliable way of a thing. Once you determine that something is a reliable way of knowing something, there's no way to evaluate it externally. Like, right, how do I determine whether logic is true? I already assume logic is true. I can't prove it logically. Or the more fun one is, what are the odds that probability is true? <laughs> okay, right. So if if logic and probability yield opposite results, what are you gonna do? Right? There, right? These are two modes. Of, <laughs> they're two, right? They're, right? they're two. They're two modes of knowing. Yeah. And if they yield opposite results, and you can just live with it because you know what? I don't know what to do. Right? They both seem to be true according to the ways in which I derive truth. Mm-hmm. So quantum is actually the metaphor for that. Quite a bit is a good metaphor for lots of things, right? Except that you know, the, the question is whether it's a useful clarifying metaphor. Uh, well, you have to understand quantum mechanics, but yeah, you know, once you understand quantum mechanics, major, right? <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I use it. I use it for I use it, I use it for a general theory of stock also. But I should just point <laughs> out that the um, the MIT students always get mad at me when I use Jeremy Schnittman particularly, who's, uh, who is uh, an astrophysicist uh, who now gives his own presentations on on Torah and science. Uh, but he used to get very mad at me and claim that I was misusing. Uh, every time I do this, I have my girls completeness theorem piece, and mathematicians get mad at me. Uh, so I'm just aware that I'm you know I function as a layperson everywhere instead. <laughs> Uh, what uh, what did you say about like somebody with a name that begins with V says? You just a, said I thought you said a, like, a double truth thing. A Averroes, A V E R R O E S. Um, right, A V E R R O E S, who is the same as okay. the Arabic philosopher Ibn Rushdie. Averroes is the way he was known in Christian Europe. So what's the double thing? You can live with two things that contradict each other. Uh, it's not dialectic. They're not in relationship to each other. They just contradict. That's okay. Oh, you can live with a contradiction. Okay. Right, you can live with a contradiction, but that's I'm, also maybe Chabad philosophy. <laughs> I'm sure they, there's a great deal of it. Very easy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, so you said a general theory of stock. Is there also a specific theory of stock? Oh well, I, I generally yeah, I like. It, it's, that was okay, all right. So relativity, relativity, relativity jokes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, special, special. Yes. Okay. Uh, okay. Good. If you're gonna use the physics metaphors, get them right, people. Come on. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm, just being, I'm just being. I'm just being. Yeah. I. I, I want to be cautious and not to claim any authority when I. Yeah. When I, when I use you know when I'm. You know, basically, you know, in many of these areas, I'm just you know, in philosophy also, I'm mostly using what Bertrand Russell explained to me. Uh, in the history of Western philosophy, then there's a little bit of self supplementing from friends um, and professors. Okay. Um, speaking of which, I should just say that uh, I wouldn't mind, at least in my mind, the, making this shared Lili Nishmas, Professor Yishayim Ori, who died this morning, was a professor at Rebel and really taught me taught me how to teach Tanakh and how to learn Tanakh in very regular ways. But you'll, I think you can see what I teach Agatha because it's true of all literature. They find the find the space in a text where the words in a text that change everything where everything mm -hmm. depends on what that word means and then stuff no, right and the, so you can teach all of Sefer Eov that was an incredible thing teaching Sefer Eov in a six in a six you know like a 12 session class just by focusing on like deep psukim and you can see how everything shifts yeah just based on what those on what those psukim mean uh, it was really quite spectacular um, also very good man so, um, uh, okay so um, so you right. So you, if you right, you can deal with conflicting results in ethics and morality by saying, uh, by saying that one of them is you must have one of them wrong. You just can't know which. You can say that, you know, that we live, we live on the basis of, of epistemology, and so when we have conflicting epistemologies. We're stuck. We don't right. We have two things that we believe that we reasonably believe to be true, and there have no we have no possible way of reconciling them. It's just like we have, really have no possible way of reconciling logic and logic and probability unless we think there's another discipline which is yet superior epistemology. Like so we might think empiricism is superior, or whatever, um, right? So, but you can live right it, once you acknowledge that the contradictions are derived by independent epistemologies, then it can cease to bother you. It's not an incoherence in you because you live with different epistemologies in, right in the real world. They sometimes what's epistemology? ways of knowing something. Okay. Um, and you, li you, live, you live with the conflict. There, are, you know, there's a, a more sophisticated model, which is, uh, I'm sure, there's a more complicated model, I guess, say not philosophically, but practically, which that it might be that um, you could we say that the social good is best accomplished by by clashes of epistemologies in certain cases, which is kind of what I was arguing by torture. 
right? That it's good for it's good for the law to the fact that it's illegal changes the way in which you think ethically, right? So the right so even really really ethics is superior, but it's important for it for law to be able to have independent validity in order to prevent you from making ethical mistakes. Otherwise, you'll just be a pure utilitarian and you'll torture with you know with insufficient motivation. But right, so that right that there are ways of reconciling. I don't think the ref says any of this. Um, and he also doesn't deal with conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, the question is, as a um, as a poster of Lichtenstein, uh, who I think, well, I guess I don't, it doesn't even matter. I think I think I'll have the same basic problem, which is that even if he doesn't deal with conflict, conflict in practice is inevitable. Um, and here the conflict is starker, even because. It's right because it's a conflict about um, jurisdiction. Right? It's not just a conflict about results. It's right that in the rough system, you can you know, somebody coming from ethics can claim that not that you are doing halacha wrong, but you are wrong in doing halacha. Mm -hmm. Right, because this is not a space in which you can do halacha, and that's right, and that's really you know that's fundamentally reconcilable. Uh, right, that's right. That's a much worse. It's a much worse conflict, um, in a sense. So we really have to think about, right? You know, does the rav create boundaries so that, right? So it's, that is a basis for discussion. If I come and say this is a space for ethics, and you say, but it's usher. So we could claim, which right, that halacha carves out its space, and then halacha, ethics is just what's not halacha. But I don't think that's true because I think he says there are places where halacha shouldn't go. Right, nothing. Lizzie is not going to tell you well. You can't make halacha there because asis of atovayasher space. Mm -hmm. Right, there's lots of halacha which is about asis atovayasher. You might say it would be a bad idea to make halacha there because we we should leave more space for asis atovayasher. But you can't say that it's illegitimate halacha. Whereas I think the review could say it's illegitimate halacha. Right, it's just you're doing the wrong thing when you try I mean, to make love. Raises the question of like what's considered illegitimate halacha. Right, right. The whole right. The whole. It's a very powerful notion. It's better not to do. Then would that be illegitimate, or would that just be like it's a shame I mean, that we did this? <laughs> okay, right. That's a, right. That's a really good question, right? Wait, what do you, what do you do about that? But I think it's like it's a really, it's a it's a big notion to say that um, that failing to make halacha about this, right? Failing is the wrong word. Not making halacha about this is a success, not a failure. It's not like we tried very hard in the end we couldn't reduce it to rules. Right. It doesn't sound like what the Ramban is saying. Right, doesn't say right. It doesn't right. It sounds like a radically different notion that there right that that there are kinds of questions that we should not aspire to transform into halacha. Okay, first we figure out what they are. So what the Rav says at the start, um, and it was useful to hear you read it and see how people react. Mm -hmm. uh, also, I get that, but it's just <laughs> see how you react along along. And there are generational things that are also important for me to for me to get as to how people react to the Rav. Um, I think in this generation it should be like much shorter and, and like pictures or something. <laughs> not, not for me, me necessarily. Every, every, yeah, told yeah. for me. I mean, you know, for me, <laughs> you know, I read Ishalacha. I tried reading Ishalacha the first oh, yeah. time in camp, and I got, I think, where most people did. Rabbi Helfgott is a funny story. Everyone gets up, gets up to the long footnote about it. 
Footnote four, exactly uh, right. The right. Healthcare wrote an article <laughs> called "The Long and Winding Road" um, about about there's no one will get either, which is a Beatles song. Um, right, and that's the footnote where you discover that you're not supposed to want religious peace. You're supposed to live in conflict dialectic, which is a great theology for teenagers, and not such a good theology for parents of young children. I, which you know, people told me that I didn't really believe. Um, but you know the whole. Right. When I was a teenager, going through you know all the philosophic angst when it was supposed to go through you know as a you know as a Orthodox teenager with parent parents with doctorates who read very widely, going you know who, who mm-hmm. self chose the semi Haredi high school. Uh, right, all right. I know, going through, going through all right. You know, going through all all the right angsty things, and that was just marvelous, right? You, mm-hmm. Yes, you're supposed to feel this way. Religious life is supposed to be tumultuous. Um, and I don't think I think the first time it was really brought 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 up to me the way you know what the issue was. I, I uh, made the mistake at one point in my life of interviewing for a shul. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, for the shul uh, that I often go to now. Uh, which uh, where they happily hired Rabbi Moshe Rosenberg instead of me, which was a very very wise move on their part in Kigarn Hills. But I interviewed there because my sister wanted me to live near her. Um, and the interview ended uh, after you know, asked me what my what, you know what my hashkafa was, and I presented you know basically ishalacha and tension and storms and dealing with all these sorts of things. And uh, somebody on the interview committee looked at me and said, "So what will you tell my seven year old?" <laughs> And I just like I just I was just silent. And it was absolutely nothing. I could have said about religion that could be meaningful to a seven-year-old. Uh, I was just watching some and navigating with nine-year-olds, right? And watching, you know, trying to figure out how I, how I would how I would do that. Um, and that's uh, what I guess can tell you at some point, you know, the spectacular success I had doing it in our in our family, of course. <laughs> <laughs> For this day, school was invented. But, um, any case, um, yeah. Um, I lost track. How did I get there? You were saying, oh, you'd be interested to hear our reaction to this essay. Ah, right, generational things. Right. So I was just, I was just going through, but autobiographical things about this. So I read, you know, so I read the Rav. I didn't get past the Greek on page five or whatever it is. I tried reading it in Hebrew once. Oh my god, even worse. <laughs> I don't think it matters. You get to Greek either way. <laughs> the long string. I didn't read Greek. That was, but it's very. But the first four pages are very important. The four is very, very important. Deeply influential. If you never get that. The original is Hebrew, right? No, this is English, but the Halachic Man. We're talking about a book called Halachic Man. Um, and then, um, then I got to my teach to Maimonides a little bit after this, and I spent uh, like founding pedagogic experience where I spent the first year explaining to my senior class where I differed from the Rogue because I thought it was very important for them to understand where I differed from the Rogue because where I was in Maimonides, right? Salvation School, right? And I'm not teaching exactly the same thing. And it took uh, until somewhere around February or March for I think it was now Rabbi Danny Rakoff to tell me that no one had ever taught anything about the Rav in Maimonides and they had the faintest idea what I was talking about <laughs> and, had, and had, <laughs> the entire year everyone was wondering what he was talking about <laughs> he's different because he's distinguishing it from something that we never heard of and some years later they started with which gets revived once in a while, it still exists in some form, something called the Salvation Seminar, where graduating seniors would be taught something about the Rav. Uh, but still nothing, you know, the, the notion that the theology suffused the school, certainly not consciously. And um, you know, you don't do it consciously. In any case, interesting experience. Uh, but, you know, but 
Um, I spent, so I, but I spent, you know, basically I still spend a lot of my life just oscillating between, you know, fighting with the road, figuring out the road really means something that, that, I, that I find really powerful, fighting with something else. But everything, I, I can't escape the gravitational, um, uh, the gravitational field that right I'm in orbit. I'm using all the physics benefits. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, and when I, but when I started um, writing some stuff uh, in recent years, you know, the world had moved on. Like one of the things we were very worried about was row centrism and modern orthodoxy. And is there no thought, there's no thought independent of it. And it's still not clear that there's enough thought independent of it, but it's also not clear that it's automatically meaningful to people. Um, right. And just right. The way, the way, the way, the way it used to be like, you, were, you knew that you had to relate to it. Right. And that when, the, when, when, uh, when Mark Gottlieb took over Maimonides, so he, he gave, I thought an excellent, um, Opening at the opening of the Salvation Institute, saying like we're the first generation that never learned from the Rav, and that's mm -hmm. going to change things. And Dr. Schatz gave the speech about how the Rav was all about creativity, and so the best tribute is to actually think independently. Uh, either of those things really went very far, but uh, they were right. They were right in Christian. So you know, I I saw the Rav once on Rosh Chodesh uh, when I was an MTA, and he came in he came in for halal, um, but I did not. Uh, I never learned from the Rav directly. Um, you know, my father went to one shir and likes repeating it to me. Um, very beautiful share, uh, but that's it. So I, I understand that you know, figuring out what people, what things where people are reading it and saying, oh, that's that's talking about the way in which I've always lived and reading it as mm -hmm. something entirely you know, alien, right? Let's do with like societal shifts also. Yeah, like to the right and to the left. Sure, and intellectual shifts. You know, we don't think you know, whether you're into certain kinds of analytic philosophy, right? When when when, when analytic philosophy just you know, went out the window for a while, right? Mathematical analytic philosophy just wasn't something that interests people. So then a lot of what the Rav said didn't resonate intellectually at all, because it was just coming out. It still is coming out of a very specific intellectual universe, philosophically, and it's just not there. So it's valuable. And then you know, there's the, they're just the personal associations, like the word multifarious. Always, mm -hmm. I, I always hear the word multifarious in Ravar and Soloveitchik's voice. Because uh, I wasn't a virus, I was and I was numerous and multifarious, right? So that, you know, or, you know, hearing Professor, you know, every, I think anyone in my generation hears, whenever you hear, see the word willy, anyone says willy nilly, what you think of is Professor Carmi imitating the Rav saying, right, saying willy nilly. And so those are just, you know, emotional associations that just don't exist um, for other people, um, whether the people ended up in certain institutions or not, um, right? But everyone in that generation, it was, it was a dominant thing. So it's not anymore. You know, it's the uh, you know, same way that uh, Harry Potter doesn't play the same overwhelming role in consciousness. Uh, Harry Potter's fun. <laughs> I, I watched him. I watched him in high school. Where, yeah, where one of my one of my fifteen year old students didn't know that Harry Potter was an orphan. It was very weird to me. I mean, that is weird. I read Harry Potter, but I read better fantasy. I was thinking, you know, I was, I know, I was, but yeah, I got it to the, I was thinking in my head what I'm going to do next Tuesday night. And so it, I think I was going to focus on Harry Potter and the resurrection and the resurrection stone. And then I was, you know, then I thought previously about, uh, about the city of Lu the city, the city of Luz and the, and the, um, the invisibility cloak. Uh, which hides you, which hides you from death. And I was trying to think of whether there's anything that parallels the death stick, and I haven't been able to. But I was, and I was going to set it up as a series of Shiram from Moshe Rosenberg Shul. But I'm like, not that many people care anymore. The same way, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, he wrote the book, right? Morelli from Ruggles, all right. But uh, people don't aren't as you know, Harry Potter doesn't play that cultural role, yeah. and the Rav may not play that cultural role in modern orthodoxy that he did. Okay, so with all that, when he, when he starts off by when he starts off by distinguishing between. Mm -hmm. 
uh, he says halacha, right, and obviously the language is fun, right, wedded to the abstract local ethos, but also linked with living experience, and then somewhere along the way we get romance. Uh, right, this is part of what the Rav constantly tries to do with varying success is to um, write philosophy passionately, right, but, right, mm -hmm. but not not Hegel and writing like writing romantic philosophy passionately, right? But writing, writing analytic philosophy passionately. It's a very hard thing to pull off. Mm -hmm. uh, there are often moments I I once just sat down and translated the game of Vikash to Misham because I thought it was really beautiful poetry and I thought I'd make a project that would translate all of Vikash to Misham, but it turns out it's not poetry after the first uh, three pages. <laughs> it just didn't work. As opposed to Ishalacha, which can, I think. I did a very bad job of it in the article I published in the House. I think Ishalacha actually would be very effective um, if it were translated more as poetry. Um, and that was my argument in a warehouse that we should put another translation, which is explicitly poetry. Um, but unfortunately, I, I, my, the translation, I, the model translation I put out was a disaster. Uh, it's the worst thing I've ever published. <laughs> I made mistakes. I hate making mistakes. <laughs> I hate making mistakes. But anyway, all my fault. Professor Kaplan nailed me, absolutely. Um, Okay, so Halakha knows God, also knows of God, it also knows God, right? And you would think, reading this part, right, that this is all about Halakha, right? And it's really, I think there's like a bait and switch when you're reading this essay where you think it's going to be another rub essay about how all that matters is Halakha, and Halakha covers everything. And all of a sudden, there's just this astonishing claim, right? So right, he says, God reveals himself in a cloud of glory to his people or to speak with them. Second, he reveals himself to teach his people the Torah and commandments. The first section speaks of the confrontation of God and man. The second, right, in short, God was covered in our sense experience, um, right? The second is concerned with teaching us laws and commandments, and you you think you're like you're in this uh, you know this evolutionary model, where right we're progressing from right um, towards towards law right everything 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 completely conforms expectation, and then you get this amazing claim that halachic morality was born from the experience. Halachic morality comes out of the uh, the revelation, right? And you know, no one knows who he's reading or not, but you could say. Um, you know, there is a whole debate starting in the Rambam, right? That Heschel makes a big deal out of it as to what the people actually heard at um, at Sinai. If you're a Rambam person, so right, so you say that the what the Madregos of Navua are fundamentally about your capacity to reduce experience to experience to words and law. And right, for the Rambam, the Rosh Rabbeinu is unique because he's the only prophet who was capable of translating God's will into law. No one else could get it clearly enough, right? But right, so the apex is law and Torah, and that's what Moshe Rabbeinu is. And Moshe Rabbeinu can experience God that way. Everybody else can only get can only, can only get a generalized uh, revelation experience, which is right. Then Heschel you know, takes that much further in in different ways. And here the Rav comes along and says, maybe not. Maybe they're just totally, they're both true, right? So you're not going to go with Heschel and claim that they, that other people couldn't experience God, right? God as law. But they're right. They're two different experiences, and they both matter, and they both generate, and they both generate mandates. <clears throat> and the halacha wasn't not only halacha doesn't succeed in translating everything; it wasn't intended to. There are whole spaces that are well, left. Can say define halacha. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I think the way he is. I mean, he's saying halacha doesn't encompass everything. It just depends halachic law versus halachic morality. Well, lots to figure out what, what 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 halacha means in that, right? Oh, right. That's, that's a big challenge. Okay, so halachic morality, 
was born from the great God experience, um, right? Then we have lots of rhetoric, very, very pretty rhetoric. Uh, but there's a but there's a really powerful claim. The powerful claim is that halachic morality is rooted in a right in um, in the day. Now this has to be read in dialogue with right with with um, the Rambam's halachicization of imitatio day uh, in Hilchos Deos, I believe. Uh, I didn't look it up again to the Deos or Talmud Torah, right? For the, right, with the Rambam, right? So the Rambam turns Mahurachem Bavachan and puts it into the Mishnah Torah. So the Rav says that halachic morality is grounded in a particular kind of experience of Matashio Day is not, I want to be what God is, except in the sense that, right, I want to, right, it's, I'm inspired to be like that, right? Or you could say, I, I aspire, right, from the connected to our previous things, right? Um, right I, aspire, I aspire to be um, to be like God. I'm not trying to imitate God, right? I'm aspiring to be like God. Okay, and he claims that, right, that if you really experience God, and all of a sudden, all your all your value judgments, your axiology. I thank my nephew Frank Meth for introducing me to axiology. Uh, it is a very powerful, it is a very good word, and, and probably I probably use it without knowing it before Frank started using it, and then I had to look it up. Um, so, right when a person beholds God, an inner catharsis, compelling a complete change of one axiological hierarchy, right, uh, must occur. Uh, right, you must feel worthy of what you have, what you what you have encountered, and this worthy requires moral assent and and sanctification. Okay, and this is different than halacha. Right, it doesn't generate, it doesn't generate awe and obedience. It generates a desire to be. It doesn't generate as opposed. It doesn't generate a desire to fulfill will. Right, will doesn't enter into it. And I think that's a very right. So if this is true, right, so, this, so then the whole nature of halachic morality is different. Right, it's not. Avoda in the same sense. Because it's not two. Right? It's worship. But right, if you want to like hero worship, right? In a sense, right? But it's not, right? But it's not, um, but it's not, it's not service, it's not um it's not it's not hierarchical in quite the same way, right? You're not necessarily doing it for God. Right. Doing it for yourself. Yeah, it could be, right? Right. That sounds like that space is that space is open. Okay, right. So relationship also could be for the other yeah, right. We could person, talk about, but in this case it's actually right. We can talk about he doesn't yeah. he doesn't talk he's not talking so much about he doesn't talk about love yet, I think, in quite he talks about romance. So the interesting thing, right? We have to find out what his vision of romance is. Um does romance involve wanting to be like the other person, only wanting to be with the other person. Um is probably what I say? No. Okay. Um, okay, so then he tells you, right, that halacha is the same for everybody. Um, a saint is not required to somehow employ a more complex mode of method implementation. Halacha is democratic, right, which is a very, very interesting uh, claim by making everything the same by reducing it to actions. Now that runs to some extent into trouble with notions of kiyum, um, right? The more kavana, the more kavana matters, the less democratic it is. Um, because it might be like I mean, you're speaking on the level of the ideal here. Um, we use it for practical in the next paragraph. It's, it's bizarre that he's claiming that any of this is like um, applies to all people. 
right? Like he brings up Philon. Uh, he right? says men specifically there. Which obligates, mm -hmm. which obligates all men alike, except that it doesn't because it doesn't obligate non-Jews. Which, like, 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 there's, there's nothing that he can actually bring up that obligates everybody, actually. Like, unless mm -hmm. he wants to go to the Shabbat Zitzvah and he's ignoring that because smart people are obligated, so therefore everything is equal. Smart is people? Yeah, that's essentially his, his smart, main thing. Both smart and, and less smart people. Yeah, he uh, says he says he says both genius and simpleton. Genius. Like that's always one of his core things. Is like is like if geniuses are still obligated, then there, there must be something going on here. And he's, I mean, he's not interested in universal suffrage. He's interested in trying to avoid certain kinds of elitism, which are based on. Uh, yeah, what he sees as accidental characteristics, I guess. Yeah, but it's Jews and Andrews don't work. Okay, it's a fair critique, right? Whether you know, the word democratic. We also claims that halacha that, 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 that the halacha is law, which he equates to the Shulchan Aruch, is democratic and exoteric, which is like the Shulchan Aruch was written 500 years ago, and it happened to be written at a moment in which yes, people could buy a Shulchan Aruch, but like before that point, like the, like there's just no sense in which halachic knowledge is exoteric. It was something that was very hard to get. It was something that you needed extreme training to be able to understand. Only like, for halachic knowledge. Using on the level of the ideal, halacha applies equally to everybody. Practically, how people are going to do it can be different. After the says in the next paragraph. But uh, he specifically tries to claim this about specific halachas and specific about the shulchan aruch. Like like his examples don't work for that at all. Well, uh, it's still more universal than like every individual, like, like, let's say tefillin. What if like one person, like they don't want to do tefillin or like they feel like it's not helpful to their relationship with Hashem, but it's universal. And even if it's only like two, two or three people that the law says, okay, these three people have to wear tefillin. It's still universal. Okay, way. well, but why should why should political, social, and cultural like, changes you know, general have no impact, but physical changes do? Right, a blind person like becomes like somebody who is blind. They they have fewer obligations, right? Why 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 is it that those that those things? I think that's on the level of the practical implementation. Blind people being blind is the level of practical implementation because you know, then we have to make claims about what an ideal human being is, which are even more dangerous. Mm. <laughs> That, you know, there's the, maybe not ideal in the sense of best, but like you know, there's your model of what the human being is, and then these people are just physical exceptions to the model of to, to, right, to the model of human being, which you can do if you're you know, that, that was standard for a long time, but mm -hmm. not so we're not we're not so into that now, I don't think. He also claims that a saint is not required to somehow employ a more complex method of implementation of the norm, which is just against many, 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 many conceptions of halava. Yeah, certain council of demonstrators I didn't. It's against any 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 concept that has a nefesh yachmer. It's against any concept that has midas chasidus. It's against it's against a lot of things. Interesting. Including midas chasidus in this. Why? Why is that not part of halacha? I think he's making a distinction between the baseline halacha and other things. Where does he say that? The baseline halacha. He keeps saying that halacha applies to everybody equally, and it's just not true. And none of his examples work. I mean, you 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 clearly have a different conception of halacha than he has. In what sense? In what, in what sense does halacha apply to everybody equally? Hmm. I mean, on the level of the ideal. What does that mean? I mean, he, he's like, it's like a very brisker thing, I think. It's like to take the halacha and say, well, this is an abstract concept that, you know, True, you know, many people will wear different tefillin in different ways, but you know, ideally, 
But what, not ideal, what, are the word, what is the word ideal ad? Ideally, if we were all spherical cows, then we would all have exactly the same non-obligation in Finland of not having arms. Like, <laughs> like, honestly, like, this is not, it's not a meeting, it's not a meaningful claim. Even in this ideal world, it doesn't apply to everybody because it doesn't but apply, because Finland doesn't apply in the same way because Finland don't apply to ideal women. Wait, but in your definition of the word universal, like nothing would be universal then. Like what's universal then? Like, I mean, he could have he could have brought up lots of things that actually are universal holistically. Like, like for instance, um, the obligation not to not to not to um like worship idols, right? That's, he could have brought that up. Right. He chose not to give that as an example. I don't understand that. It is you know, a bad thing when people try to say universal and they can't come up with things that aren't gendered. Um, mm. But it's not even that it's not that it's gendered. It's not. It's gendered and it's specific to Jews. Oh, and he hasn't. He hasn't Wait, managed Jews, to. Can they uh, worship I don't idols? Think he's referring to no. Here. Okay, that's an example. Right? Yeah. Murder. This entire essay is only referring to Jews. That's true. How is it universal or democratic? What does that mean? Not really. That's the opposite of universal. You can't say something is universal in the sense that it applies to all members of a particular group. That's the opposite of what universal means. That's particular. It's just a question of how large I mean, the group it depends is. on your frame of reference. Yeah, like who do your audience? So if we pretend yeah. that women and non-Jews and um, you know, like massive other categories of people don't exist for the purposes of this paragraph, then it could make sense. But in there what sense does it actually claim anything? Then there should be a word that's universal just for Jews. Then he wouldn't use the word universal. Wait, what, what, what have you claimed is universal because yeah. it applies to all people like Jews over one sixty? Would that be a meaningful use of the word? Or is right is universal is universal obligation to dunk, um, so long as right so long as so long as you're over six feet tall it's a tall <laughs> and have a vertically at least forty inches, <laughs> right? It's just, you're, you're, then it just becomes semantic, right? So, yeah. So you have you have to you have to believe that this form of universality matters. Uh, I mean, you can have a, a legitimate kasha like well, like what's the monophony of having it be of saying this at all? Because he wants. I mean, there's I a value that's... judgment, right? Democracy is good. Right. There's a right, there's a value in saying that this is the same for everybody. But it's also it's not even factually true of the categories he brings up, right? For like like I mentioned the the saint category, right? But also like rich and poor people don't always have the same obligations, yeah. right? Um, and it's um, say it, on, on the ideal level they do. Practically, you know, they don't. But okay, what does that mean? Master and subordinate do not have the same obligations because slaves don't have the same obligations. It's a bizarre like um, like category for him to bring here because it's literally he says master and subordinate. What does that mean? Uh, he's just subordinate. He's careful probably not to say slave. Yeah. I mean, it's a bizarre it's yeah. a bizarre choice. Uh, I, I think it's a you know, I think it's a fair critique. You know, you can you can always resolve it. You know, Tani's using ideal language. I would say the hero and coward, right? Language. Cowards cowards yeah. get to go home when they're called to war. This wasn't published. It doesn't apply the same. Maybe he didn't choose his words so carefully because uh, it wasn't published. Maybe it's just like he's just trying to, it's One like an abstract idea. Cowards, cowards don't have an obligation to go to war. That's also a weird, weird, weird choice. All of these have exceptions. Yeah, I mean, maybe he would say, I mean, to, they have a chia of this, they just have a tour as opposed yeah. to they're not chia. Okay, you can do that for some of these, but not all of them. There's too many counterexamples. Okay, I I also, yes, do you want to say for Phil? And I, I agree, there are problems. I think part of the reason he is using Phil as an example is because. Like it, it's a visual symbol of how things do not change over time on some level. There, it kind of because part of it is that I part of what I was getting like that you have a certain constancy that 
doesn't like the we change as a people like we still put on tefillin and that has not changed I, so there it is particular ways he doesn't say that he, he doesn't he doesn't mention the the time factor or the he does, he, he does. In, in in that sentence he doesn't and in and in, in the sentence right it, like, like he's, he mentions, he mentions a bunch of things that it obligates all men alike in, but he doesn't mention the fact that it obligates all men regardless of historical circumstances. He I'm could have mentioned that. He says, okay. I'm arguing that it's anticipating that. Okay, good. I think the critique is fine. I think the response is fine. And a lot of, you know, a lot of the challenges are going to be like, you know, which challenges in many areas of yeah. thought, both halakhic and, uh, and hashkafic are which abstractions you find intuitively meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, because abstractions always involve ignoring important details. So you have to figure out which ones matter. Um, and you know, certainly there was a time when everyone understood that universal meant uh, universal meant applies to all people accounting for gender. Mm-hmm. And you know, right, you don't say all people accounting for gender anymore. And it used to be Jews were much more comfortable saying all people, which we mean, right? But which we mean Jews. And now we really don't, you know, the whole don't really like aren't so fond of saying things like that. Because right, our category people inherently goes beyond that, uh, right, automatically goes beyond that, and you know, and, also and, willing to say all people, which we mean adults, which is another big deal, right? And mm-hmm. and and mentally competent, mm-hmm. right? Those are right. Those are all. So you know, so I we spent was it three years ago in SPM trying to deal with the question of whether people with mental illness can be can have a chiyav and mitzvos. Um, right, right. Maybe you can have a chiyav. It's just we can't be mechayev. You right is what the argument I tried to make. Uh, there are circumstances we can't know that you're chayev, but you can know that you're chayev, uh, right? Because we have, right? Because we have discomfort with treating those, right? Those as right? the concept of universality is less popular now, <laughs> uh, or we want universality to mean really, really. You know, we look at it and we say the United States is a democratic country, and then we get bothered by how can you be a democratic country with slavery, right? But for two hundred years. You know, people were perfectly comfortable saying that it says that Wisconsin is a democratic country, and and we lived. We know, okay, all people, all men are created equal, right? You know that. You know, just like you used to say, to boldly go where no man has gone before, and then all of a sudden, no trek is here at all. But that's not that's not really the same thing because man was just a term that was ambiguous. Like, okay, okay, the the as opposed to in, in, in if like like for slavery. Okay, right, you can argue that the, 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 the moral, the moral that was one of the extreme extreme focus on language as opposed to substance when to boldly go where no man has gone before became where no one has gone before in the next generation, which we're not really good But um, um, yeah, so I think that's a, I think one of the challenges that we have to address in seeing to what extent the rub is, has power uh, is to what extent does the power of the rub depend on your willingness to overlook the certain details and the abstractions and right, or to find new language that in it that enables it to apply to right to abstract to abstractions that are different than the ones he would have applied them to? Um, he certainly has this model, which I think still has power for a lot of us. That there's some notion of halacha which is supposed to be objective. Right? And actually, like the whole drive of his theology at the very beginning is that Allah is supposed to be objective. He right, right, his, his work as a philosopher is designed to recreate objectivity in religion. Right? There's a crisis because Kant destroys objectivity everywhere in the world mm-hmm. and, uh, sorry, and then um, recreates it in the realm of science in a, right, by claiming that objectivity is what is common to all human minds. 
um, right? Time, space, and causality, right? You can so you can re you can reconstruct science. This again, I'm being an amateur, right? By by coming up with categories. So an objective ceases to be a property of the world, but objectivity becomes the ways ways which are it's inevitable that human beings will experience the world. But and that succeeded in, in allowing science to progress as a as a collective endeavor because we had right because we could be a break we could have a shared basis and and then the rub said but we haven't done that for religion so religion has been reduced to romanticism and it's all about each individual's experience and so halachic mind is an attempt to, to ground in a, an object an objective religion right and, and it claims that halacha is and at least maybe the right it all depends on what Allah means there and you have the same challenge right because if he's trying to respond to Kant's challenge and coming with only works for Jews is not so great they right? say so right so that you have the same challenge Allah in mind you have you have a, what would it mean to be objective but he ends but he his argument roughly is going to have to be something of the form there are ways in which all members of a particular class sufficient to constitute objectivity will experience God and then we can base build off those experiences. We can build laws like right, and we can build a, a, a scientific religion in that sense. And that's what halacha is supposed to be, right? And that's the the organizing metaphor I think throughout his um, throughout his. Somebody has to say the word reverse sometime in the conversation of how you pronounce it. <laughs> Very specific. Um, but here, right, having done all that work, right, then he recarves out the romantic space. And he says he uses explicitly the language of romance, and he carves out a space which he says is purely subjective and is rooted um, and is rooted entirely in an experience. And he doesn't claim that everyone had the same experience. And he, right, and now there's another theme in his thought, which is the incommunicability of experience. And so, but he doesn't, as opposed to trying to find a way to claim, but somehow Sinai was different and everyone had the same experience. And there's no Sinai, everyone had experiences which some, right, and the objective components of that were translated into halacha. But there remain irreducible subjective components, and those generate something called morality. Um, right, that's the, um, so even have it upside down, you realize I have a page upside down. <laughs> Um, all right, therefore, we must say, right, so now we're on page, uh, now we're on page, um, uh, page 1.86. Therefore, we must say that morality in contradiction, contradistinction to the halachic law, and here he doesn't say halachic morality, but he just says morality in contradistinction to the halachic law, is a personal subjective affair, which means, number one, it can't be objectified in definitions and formulations. Right, right, there is no brisker morality. Right, so if halacha means brisk, there's no right. That doesn't work at all. It is impossible to describe morality in distinct cognitive categories. What you need is not science, but art, right? metaphors, illustrations, oblique, oblique allusions, indirect expression. Um, not with concepts and structures, not with laws, but commitments. So it's really, I think, interesting to think about the distinction between what he calls commitments and what uh, Professor Brown calls principles. Right, for, to what extent are they overlap, to what extent are they the same? Right, Brown is probably speaking a little bit more objectively. Maybe, right? Maybe, you know, and he's, he's also later, right? So, right, so this whole, right, and we don't, but we don't know when this essay was written, 
right? So Lachik law is, is addressed to some kind of abstract eternal Raju. The moral obligation, in contrast, was handed down to the concrete individual, to each Jew, as a separate, autonomous, one-timely, and singular being living in a changing history-making world. Each individual fulfills his moral commitment in his own private and unique fashion. There are no specific criteria by which he must be guided, no mathematical formula is determinants of the performance, intimate subjective gesture. Uh, okay, now you could still have said that what he means is every human being faces unique circumstances, right? You could still reconcile this with Ramban by saying every human being faces unique circumstances, and therefore we can't write a Shulchan Aruch because it would have to be a different Shulchan Aruch for everybody. But if you could walk in someone else's shoes, you should, you, you should all still make the exact same decision. And I think he explicitly rejects that. What he says is that the two people facing the exact same circumstances outside themselves. Right? Everything, right? Everything about the world is exactly the same. It's just that they are different. Those two people should make different decisions. Right? So that I think is the is the really profound claim, right? Those people are right. Right, I know you, you talked right. You, you said you like the essays about religious styles, right? So he's making a claim fundamentally that every human being has a right and obligation to develop their own religious style, um, which is a right. Morality is part of the right, the great so the great moral personalities may inspire us, but they can't make us accept all their ways, and you only because right, you're reacting directly to God. You should never react. You never react to human beings in this in the same way that you just want to emulate everything they do because everyone that would be a denial of your own subjectivity. You can't separate morality from right from from individual from individual person um, personality, um, right? And then he makes uh, you know one claim further, which is that so he calls the typical example of of Hill and Shammai, um, right, and the relation and the relationship to Shabbos, and they're both explaining Zohar, they're both explaining Zohar Yom HaShabbat L'Kacho, um, and they're incompatible, and that's okay, they're both explaining Zohar B'Shomar, right, here we really are, here we really are pluralistic, right, so he said, right, we're on page 189 now, right, so we start on page 188, right, the disagreement was due to the incompatibility of their emotional attitudes, right, Shaman and Hill are different people, that's why they keep Zohar Yom HaShabbat differently, and so we get to page 189, bottom, what we see is clear as the core is not a monolithic principle of the formal halacha. Um, okay, and then he makes what I think is the is the starkest claim, which is on page one ninety, in the um, in, right in the middle. In the middle, what he says is um, that is why there is no psak halacha in matters of morality. Right. So the concept of of halachic authority doesn't exist in the realm of morality. There should be. So now we've taught the question, what if somebody tries to, right? So is, is a meta, can you meta paskin that this is halacha? Or no, right? That there, your meta psak would be wrong. This is not halacha. And so your attempt to apply psak. So, right, so if someone does say that this is halacha, do you have to follow it? Right. So is right, is that right? So it sounds right. They're making a fundamental error. Um, so I'll, I'll quote you know, something which influences me in this regard. Um, it used to be every year that uh, Rabbi Lama Lava Shalom would give the Rav Belkin, the Rav Dr. Rabbi Dr. Lama would give the Rabbi Dr. Belkin memorial lecture. It was his one shir a year. Uh, but, you know, Rabbi Lama was, was, 
later at one point he he gave he gave a, a regular Gemara shir, which I was uh, which was in was a very interesting experience. But he used to be, mostly he gave one shir a year, and then the Rashi Shiva would go back and rebut. Uh, it was always very exciting. Uh, it was all COVID, but listen, and then they would come back and rebut it. And Rabbi Lam was such a great speaker. I remember Rabbi Reese once told me that um, you had to wait two days to think about whether he was right or not, because at the moment you were just so overwhelmed by the rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And it would take two days to be able to think about it again, right? And to, and to see, right? Because he could have said anything. He could have said that a miracle occurs, and he would have just been swept along. So, oh, sure, that a miracle occurs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, what he, get, what he was talking about the Machlokas Rabbi Yezer and Rabbi Gamliel, um, in the it was sort of the question of why, what entitles the sons of Rabbi Gamliel to Paskin like him in the first Sagi of Brachos? And his thesis, which is difficult to sustain, but a cool thesis in principle, is that the Machloket, the, the Machloket is about whether you could make a Syag in that circumstance. And the, and the Rabbi, Rabbi Gamliel held that you're only entitled to make a Syag when it's Kipalemi Mechad Davar. So you can only make a siyag when there is a problem understanding the Pasuk. And Rangelil thought the Pasuk was so Pashat that there was no right to make a And on an issue like that, there's no rove. And therefore the sons, Rangelil could tell his sons to Paskin like him because Yachid Rabin doesn't apply right, on the question of whether you have the right to make a law. It only applies, to once, once, only applies once the law has been made. So, right, so this is the same. Right, it's also hard to sustain because Rabbi Yezer is fully on the meaning of the Pasuk. Right, right, right. So, right. So the claim is not keep blaming Chadavar, but it's a funny, right? It's, it's, it was quite a, what is it, you know, you woke up to this, what? Really? But it was really cool. It was really cool. And the, and the underlying idea might be true, right? Whether you think it's a good application, a good explanation of why, or necessary explanation of why we hold Yachid Rabin doesn't apply to the Machlokas, but when you can say Kriyashmat until doesn't, uh, doesn't, right, doesn't change the underlying question about whether Yachid Rabin applies to Meta, right? To, to Meta Machlokas. About right, my focus about whether you whether this is halacha, whether you have the right to make the law. I think uh, one thing from what you said before about like how if um, if we could give a halachic book to every single person, like an individualized one, mm-hmm. and like if somebody was in that person's shoes, like they should have made the exact same decisions. So I think like personally, like what I try to do, which might be wrong, is that like I think. I try to like objectify something subjective by being like, okay, like asking a mashpia, let's say I would be like, okay, if you were the kind of person that like likes art, um, you know, would be sad if they don't do artistic type things, should they go into like art or business where like business, you would make a lot more money. Like you're trying to make it objective. I try to make it more objective, even though, I mean, I realize, I mean, it has, but I say, but I would be upset if, so I'm saying the subjective thing, to like like somebody else or like to myself when I think, but I'm trying to think like what to do in situations if you think about it like abstractly. Right. So I think he's so I, like, I think he's resisting you. <laughs> I think he's resisting. Right. You understand that there's a very strong temptation to just say, right. The question is, what should a person like me do as opposed to what should I do? Right. Right. He wants you to right. So he thinks there's a stage where you have to say, what should I do? And there's no one like you in the world. Mm-hmm. You are unique. And so the answer, the answer to the question what you should do is unrelated to the question of what anyone else should do. You can ask for advice, right? But yeah. it's not the same thing as saying that that what you should do is decided the same way as what, what everyone else should do, or what anyone else should do. Right? Everyone. Right? So it's a very bold, it's a very bold claim. And as I say, there's a fundamental claim that you know, now you get an authority question. Do we say whenever there's a psak that proves it's halacha, and so this is not that, or do we say that the first question you have to ask is should there be psak? 
And so, right, and so, right, and so lots of issues can be, right, and this is, you know, where somebody, you have the same kind of fights about whether you can pass in Hashkafa, um, right, I think, um, I gave a share at Gush some years ago, like, what, what issues are amenable to Psak, right, so you have people who claim that Hashkafa is amenable to Psak, and people who claim that, right, that Hashkafa is not amenable to Psak, right, because you can't, because truth is, truth is a characteristic that's independent of authority. Uh, right, right. So you can argue, and you can argue. You know, right here, you can argue that morality is independent of authority. You can, right, you can argue all sorts of, all sorts of, of questions like that. He makes the claim that there are, right, that there is an area called ethics that is independent of, independent of of psak, that is not subject to psak, um, which I think you know, radically. I think he would have to say that uh, in an area which psak is illegal. Right, part of the halacha should be you're not allowed to paskin this, right? And if I won't, if I paskin that, so I'm free, right? Well, your psak came wrong because they're against my psak. Right? You can always play games, right? You try and deal with the with iterative categories like that. Um, so I think that's, uh, I think, I think that's, I think that's that's you know, I think that's a fair description of the claim, um, right? But he has other interesting claims, right? That you know where he where he says that. Ethics is never public. Ethics is always private. That's a very interesting claim. Not entirely clear what he means by that. Uh, then he claims that um, that you can't teach it, and that's a very big that's a very big claim, right? That you can't that you can't teach ethics. You can only teach it indirectly. Now that I think, you know, if I were writing writing about it, I would probably say, ah, this is a new translation of Rav Chaim Brisker's resistance to to, to Musar and Yeshiva. Mm-hmm. That the attempt to teach it is misguided. The only thing you can do is to try and create an environment in which students learn it. But if you try to teach it, you're making a mistake already. How do you evaluate whether they learned it? Well, that is always a question, right? You know, how do you, how do you ever evaluate the success of moral education? Well, I, there is no way here because they could always have some sort of personal investigation for whatever they decided to do. Like this is this is a philosophy which prevents moral critique. Um, that is a that is a fair thing. Um, you know, there's a project going on. Um, there are many projects going on. Most, you know, where I was approached recently about uh, you know developing character education in um, in, in Yeshivot. And in the end, I'm not at least for now participating in a part of it because I kept on you know saying you have to be aware that there are all of these philosophic limits. You know, you know, it's not clear how you measure success. Um, right, it's not right. Those, those are right. and that's problematic, you know. And for somebody who, as we said, you know, who evaluate, I evaluate myself as a teacher by the success that way, uh, as opposed to the intellectual success, uh, I hope they're connected. So that's uh, that that is a constant crisis. I think there's still room to say that the rub would say that for any given person, there is something right and wrong that they should have in their own personal morality just as an outsider there's no possible way for you to know what that is okay but like let's say one of your students is you know pulling a rafuna and going around and hitting all the other students because they think they're doing bad things and this is you know latalis and it's gonna you know help correct their behavior um there there is no way within the rough formulation that you can tell that student they should stop doing that i mean right. say it's not conducive to the classroom, classroom environment you have to agree. What do you mean? You to, the, also, how, how is that a whole consideration? Like, well, how are you? How are you going to tell them it's wrong? I think it's also actually like who cares what the other students want? They, my they, love, they, my I, I believe actually, that what I'm doing is moral. Well, I mean, whether it's moral and whether it's practical in a classroom setting could be different questions. Or whether is it? I mean, it also get to the question: Is it moral if it's not? If it's probably not going to be effective? 
like if going around hitting other people is that i think it will be safe. effective it's my moral choice it's just who i what, what it is, it's who i have to be yeah sure mm -hmm. i think a class you know you could you know once you ask me for justifications and right then we're already engaging in an objective conversation right? we're already assuming that the goal is for the classroom to function a certain way mm -hmm. but i mean the goal is for me to be me right so you know the, there's a book out which i have not yet read but i had some conversations with authors about the Rebbe nietzsche um right and this is right and this is a moment where you can look at you know the the, the that's ultimate subjectivity right there has to be a space and the flaw of all all claims like this is that they make the person, you know, they make a person on, you know, on, uh, uh, on, you know, on uh, impermeable to critique. Mm. Uh, now, then, there's also there's a there's a there's a difficult thing here where he says, well, how do you learn it? You learn it by watching Gedolei Yisrael, but if everyone's unique, right? So, right, so there has to be some analogy, and that's a general problem. Right? Anytime you claim incommunicability rather of experience, and every experience is unique, so how do you learn from other people, right? That's you know, you can like be inspired. Mm. Yeah. So it's and, like if you if you see a quality in someone else that resonates with you, then I guess you know that's part of your morality, right. even if no one else can tell you what it is. And there's a claim which you know, which for you know, probably gonna pick up like what he says, like, therefore no instruction on moral issues has never has ever been given. That's at the last page. What? No instruction on moral issues has ever been given. No one ever tried. Exactly. No successful moral instruction, right? No, no moral instruction has ever been received, right? I can see, I can see that. But yeah. the claim, right? You know, so the claim, no one ever tried to posket it, right? So now we have to put that claim, no one ever tried to posket it. When is he writing this? Sometime in the not very long after Shmir Salashon. Right. So, right. So the claim that no one, you know, that no one has ever posketed it. Right is right. This is a very, very countercultural. I mean, it could be that he defines lashon hara as not part of the area of morality. It could be lashon hara is halacha, not morality. The time already won, mm -hmm. uh, right? Okay. So I want to, you know, the last thing which in the answer I think is valuable, where he talks about it's ultimately he talks about um, what what does he think avos is? What do you think? What does he think perke avos is? Yeah. Advice. <laughs> uh, How is that on instruction? What's the difference between advice and instruction? I mean, you read it and you decide what things resonate with your. Yeah, own but he thinks no moral instruction has ever been given. Al like, no Yeah, take it or leave it. What is Hoseos? <laughs> right? How does he do with Hoseos? It might be. There might be. You know, it might be that Hoseos was just way too radical and he never figured out how to integrate it. Mm -hmm. Right? It might, it might be he just never. It might be that only published the things he had figured out to integrate, and he hadn't figured out entirely how to integrate this. That's a. Uh, you know, um, you have to be very, very good to understand that the thing you're saying doesn't integrate with other things you said. Um, I know it's mm -hmm. like one of important experience for me was um, when I had like this, I had like five big words on Bracious that, you know, that I would always say. And uh, Gore Berman, who I think is a principal of the day school in Hollywood now, but it was, I, I met him when I was a student, when I was my interning at Cornell. There was like some years after he graduated, we had a conversation outside my grandparents' building Manhattan, so I like it deeply where he just pointed out that two of my words were contradictory. And I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> and I still like spent the rest of my life, you know, still trying to figure out whether I could there is a way, in fact, to reconcile uh, my reading of Parshas Bracious, my reading of Parshas Bahira. Uh, and I had noticed. Hmm. And he just said, like, you know, I don't think you can put that again. And I'm still trying. I'm still trying. So it's his fault the book isn't out. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't think this is like totally contradictory to his other works. Like in Lonely Man of Faith, he talks about mm -hmm. existential loneliness and how each person is entirely unique. Mm -hmm. And he's just taking it further here. He's never, he, he, he doesn't, 
I don't know any other place where he applies that to the norm, right? That's right. The, right? That's the. He's taking it further. <laughs> yeah, right. That's the that's the big, uh, and you know, and he, and he has to make really big claims, which he, you know he makes big claims all over, right? But he has to make big claims, and some of those big claims you know, should properly cause you to raise eyebrows, right? No one ever passed in this, right? No one can pass in this. I really like that one, but it's a you know, the claim no one has tried would be a lot further, like you know, this is as a given. And the claim that moral no one has ever tried moral no one instructed moral interest has ever been given that 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 is like just hard, just really hard to imagine. Like what what did he mean that no one right has never been given? Right, there's you know there's there's others right there's you know ever tried the Paskin it was Hilchos Deus right you know these are like sweeping sweeping claims. Uh, okay, and then I think I think the last thing is really interesting that we you know where where because he really roots this in Snius. Hmm. Uh, right, God, right, God, right. This is all inspired by your experience of God. Last very end, right? Why is this moral masora <laughs> private, personal, experiential? Why is it not public and didactic? For God Himself abides under the shadow of transcendence and dwells in the shelter. Right, so, right, it, right. So, right, there's, right, there's a way in which God hides Himself, and so human beings in morality should preserve a zone, right, as a, right, as their a zone of unknowability and shouldn't try to make it public. Okay, so that's you know the aside from all the the way in which all this ties into the the general conversations we're having about whether what's what what does it mean if we ask a question about uh, but what you should do right so what is and you want to give a halachic answer so what's the proper kind of halachic answer there are multiple kinds of halachic answers maybe the correct halachic answer is I can't give you a halachic answer um, the other thing here is that he creates I think a concept of privacy here. Right? It's not just that morality is subjective, morality is private. Uh, right? So I want to feel like we, he uses that language, right? So I think it's worth thinking about what does he mean by privacy? Can you develop out of this some kind of general notion, right? With this, or is there a kernel here of a notion of privacy as a value, which is not what we usually mean by its news, right? But of a space. That people are are a space about themselves, right? It's not about bodies, it's not about humility, right? It's about things that are right, things that are supposed to be just yours. Mm-hmm. So, since part of what our project uh, is to right is to think about what privacy, right, what privacy means in halacha, and we'll be reading the uh, right a series of attempts to construct a lot. Uh, notions of privacy in halacha. So here you have, in a sense, he, you know, he tries it. He says that halacha and privacy are opposed. But here he, he's not really using private in the in the sense that we would usually mean when we say it. He's using private as in like specific to each person. Well, so I agree with you. Right? Nobody like, is. Like, it doesn't sound like you would say that you can't tell other people what your morality is. That's true. It's just that they're never going to get it, and they're never going to. It's never going to be their morality, also. But it should be, right? Right? Like you should, right? What do you mean? I mean, like he seems to idealize like the, the his vision in which, like you know, the master is taught unknowingly by example and never gave instruction on moral issues. Maybe it, he really does think you're not supposed to talk about it. Well, the students have to pierce that, right? Students, students on the other end are supposed to watch sink into their into their teacher's bedroom. Right. Right. That's what he's talking about, right? Students mm-hmm. follow and continually they hid and watch them watch them clandestinely, right? So. The teacher is supposed to do right, is supposed to remain private, and yet moral instruction requires piercing that privacy. Otherwise, students can't learn. 
right? That's, right? That's a very interesting tension. I don't I agree that's not the usual meaning of the word private, but neither is abortion. The usual meaning of it in America, American, right? Right. So the word privacy is gonna, is a much more complex word than the way we use it in ordinary language. Uh, right. So and part of our challenge is to try and figure out what it means in Judaism and then what the hell it relates to halacha. So I thought this is a really useful way of saying because he is using the word obviously in a different way than we would expect it to use it. But it that you know, but he it has echoes of Sneus and it has echoes of Anava. So there's right, so there's there, so there's there's there is a access to a Jewish meaning of the word that means something that we that we do, that we that we don't really need it to, and maybe that tells us that the way in which secular law uses it actually has power. And we read right, and, and when all the essays are written by Professor Rockover and Roy Lamb, right, trying to construct the Jewish notion of privacy, they're not making it up out of whole cloth, even if we think it doesn't derive directly from a specific halachic thing. Right? Maybe there's something broader that, that does exist there. Maybe it's different. Maybe it's not. So I want I wanted to put that idea out there because I think that he, I think you're entirely correct. He uses it in a way you wouldn't expect, but he does use it, and it does. It's not. It's not a homonym. Right? It's not. That, it's not that it's just like a word. It's not the same word meaning something entirely different. It's clear that it has a relationship. Okay, that is uh, us for today, and I guess that is. Um, ah. Okay, Yair pointed out, he said, I'm not trying to figure out where Yair said this. The only list religion, uh, it's probably responding to what Paramatha was talking about, which actions. So he only lists ritual and he doesn't talk about Dini Melmanos being democratic. It's also an interesting point because that would be, right, that would be a you know, clear way to say halacha is the same and Mishpadachad Yelachem. He doesn't use the rhetoric of Mishpadachad Yelachem here, even though Mishpadachad Yelachem. Shows up in the Korban Pesach, right? So everyone tries to figure out like how we can say Mishpat Echad Echam in the Korban Pesach, which is Zafka an area, which makes right, which makes so many distinctions. Um, but for Mominos, at least you have like explicit stuff about rich and poor people. That's something, even if in practice, of, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So to, to argue with you, um, if you take what you're saying like to the extreme, then like even like not worshiping idols isn't universal. In, isn't universal because that law doesn't apply to animals not well i think animals. we can like limit ourselves to like intellectually capable beings when we limit it then it's not universal it's not <laughs> okay good <universal>. <laughs> yeah we limited it yeah i mean um, i think i think you can just say like you know it's a nice it's it's, it's uh, it applies to everything with salamahim or something no but that's a limit but I, okay I, I think the question is like if you You're see if you, you see an area but at least that is but at least that's meaningfully that universal among people I, so and some things that are different you view that as fundamentally the same with some exceptions and you view that as fundamentally different with some similarities right as i think you're putting out right so, yeah, so it might be you know we will get to talk about my you know, my sixth grade students right you know who uh my early educational traumas with seventh grade students. my first year at my mother was had a class where i did not succeed in teaching at all mm -hmm. uh, because my sentence structure is too complex and i couldn't follow it <laughs> um, and, and, after a, a complete complete failure of communication much of the year, uh, I was tried one day. I tried to come up with what I thought was a really powerful thing, where I brought a Dennis Prager article about the purpose of religious education, and they said the reason you want your child to have religious education is without religious. If if you if they're confronting a situation where there's a stranger human being or their dog drowning, so his argument was that only religious education can teach you to understand that you have to save the stranger. As opposed to as opposed to the dog, if you don't have religious education, you'll save the dog, and that's why religious day school education, religious education is valuable. Yeah. I gave it to my class; they voted almost unanimously for the dog. <laughs> and, right, and, but you know, and and, uh, and still years later, right? You know, it was a basis of relationship for years later because they could always yank my chain. Mm -hmm. uh, by coming years later, my clapper, I still don't understand 
The dog knows you. <laughs> Why would you face your dog again? I could never tell whether they were checking my training or they were still in the same place as, uh, as they had been. So we have still have relationships with some of them, but uh, it's a sort of a symbol of, you know, of uh, failure failure as a teacher and challenging the whole purpose of religious education, right? That is pretty great. Right. It just didn't work. <laughs> it just didn't work. Um, but everyone has their abstractions, right? If you know, if you have a close relationship with a dog, then uh, it's not, mm -hmm. not at all obvious that you know you might be right. You're not saying also universal. you can train you can train your dog to worship. Like you can train animals to do things, so you can like train them to like worship different things. So maybe the Torah should have said like you know animals should not be allowed to worship. Okay, animals. we're gonna cut the tape at this point. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>